in the journey of life, we are often encouraged by those who are ahead of us, and we have to make sure that we are encouraging those who are alongside of us and who are behind us. Why? Because encouragement is one of the most Christ-like traits that a Christian can show. But you know, what is encouragement? How does God encourage? What does encouragement look like? Well, we're going to find the answers to these questions in the book of Acts. If you'll turn there, chapter 11, continue our series, verses 19 through 26. I'll be speaking from the NIV if you have a Bible app. And as you turn there, let me put this into context for you. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and this is his meanwhile back at the farm moment. Now, what I mean is this. He's going to take us back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, to those who were persecuted and were scattered after the death of Stephen. So Acts chapter 11 and beginning in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to preach to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And a great number of people believed and were turned or were added to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw, that the, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you so much that you have given us your word. We just pray through your Holy Spirit what we don't know, teach us and help us to live it. In Christ's name, amen. So, the stage has been set. Stephen is murdered. The believers are persecuted. And now, they're scattered. Dire circumstances. And yet, you know, we look into this text, and we discover encouragement. Well, how? Well, you see, they're not alone, are they? I want you to scroll down to verse 21. And this is going to be your first uh, fill-in right there, your first marker. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. Now, I think this is just a wonderful statement here. In fact, I just love this little word with. Don't run away from the little words. This little word uh, with has the idea of God's presence. It means face-to-face. It has the idea of intimacy. It has the idea of personal relationship. God was with them. Now, we really got to understand that these people were truly scared. 
I mean, they're scattered far away from home. They're from the south. They're scattered to the north. They don't know what's going to happen next. They don't even know if they're going to live or die. And yet, they're giving the word of God. And people are being saved. They're coming to Christ. Because the hand of God was with them. See, behind the scene of their circumstances, the hand of God was working. He was working through their circumstances. Now, that term, um, the hand of God, it's used 16 times in the Bible. The hand of the Lord is used another 39 times in the Bible. Just God's hand is used 1,265 times in the Bible. That's why I got a concordance. I didn't have to look it all up. Oh, that would have taken forever. But in other words, this is an important doctrine. It's something that we should know. And what does it signify? Well, what it means is this. The hand of God is his providential care over all of his creation. It's God's providence. Now, now that, that, that's a big term. It's a big theological term, and I don't want you to be afraid of theology. We should embrace theology. But what does providence mean? Well, it just simply means it is God's care and guidance over his creation. He is actively involved in his creation. The providence of God sustains all that he has created. I love Psalm 145.9. It states that the Lord is good to all, and he has compassion on all that he has made. Now, Jesus is going to reiterate this in Luke chapter 6. He says, the Father sends the rain on the just and the unjust. This is the gracious hand of God. Did we wake up this morning? The gracious hand of God. Do we have a breath? The gracious hand of God. God cares. But the providence of God also means that God has a plan, and he is actively working out that plan as history unfolds. God sometimes manifests his hand in judgment. Read that in the Old Testament. Read it in the New Testament. He manifests his hand in deliverance and redemption. He sent Jesus Christ into the world. But in our text, he manifests his hand through encouragement. No, we would call this the encouraging hand of God. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into a full-scale study of the providence of God. So let me give you a couple of pointers right from our text. First of all, write this down, how wonderful that life has purpose. Now we see the hand of God in this text. It not only works in their ministry moving forward, but it was also working in their situation looking backward. Now this is important that every one of us understand this. The death of Stephen and their persecution was used by God to scatter them to the north to give the gospel. Now, look in your text, where do they end up? Well, they end up in Antioch. Now, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, but it was noted for its multiculturalism and all of its diversity, more so than other cities. It was also known for its pagan temples and its moral laxity. 
So a couple of brave souls got the bright idea, hey, let's go up to Antioch, that's like going to L.A., that's like going to Las Vegas, and let's go give them the gospel. And the text tells us the hand of God was with them. People were coming to Christ. I just love that. The hand of God was with them. You see what they're doing? They're living out Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28. Now, that's a verse we're all familiar with. And we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love him, to those who have been called according to his purpose. It is significant that God used this time and this place to bring the gospel to the Greeks. It is significant that God's hand overrode evil for good. In God's hand, the evil blow struck by men is used as an instrument of good to give the gospel. Now, I find this very encouraging. Why? Because you see, we're not a cork bobbing in the sea of chance. We're not driven about by blind um, deterministic forces. We're not those who, and I'm going to age myself here, we're not those who walk around singing the Doris Day song, you know, que sera, 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 whatever will be, will be. No, 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 no. We sing, he has the whole world in his hands. He has the whole wide world in his hands. We say what the psalmist, Psalm chapter 31, verses 14 and 15, I put my trust in the Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Despite difficulties, despite disasters, believers are under the care of Almighty God. For the believer, life has purpose. But also notice in our text that God uses insignificant people. God uses insignificant people, insignificant no-names, actually, to fulfill his purposes. Take your Bible. Look at verse 19. Now, underline this. Now, those. God uses those. Unnamed missionaries. No-name evangelists. Throughout church history, the church has been blessed by those who were not predominantly um, uh, prominent, not by those who were necessarily uh, heroic, but the church was blessed by the unsung heroes, by those with no names. You know, you, you look in the previous chapter, and and and. Luke gives us all these names. He talks about Peter. He talks about uh, Paul. He talks about Stephen. He talks about Philip. But here he doesn't give us any names. He wants us to know that God is the God of the nobody who uses anybody. One of the things that our text teaches us is that the greatest expansion of the gospel happened through unnamed people unsung people whose names were not printed up in lights. People like you, people like me, 
insignificant people. You know, as I was studying this, I was kind of thinking that, you know, 100 years from now, nobody's going to know who I am. They're going to know who any of us are. But we are not insignificant in the purposes of God. God uses insignificant people to fulfill his significant purposes. And I find that very encouraging. The encouraging hand of God uses us. But there's a warning. In the Bible, whenever you read about the hand of God, you can go and check this, change always happens every time. And we see this in our text. Well, where? Well, they go off and they preach to the Greeks. Now, that was radical. That was new. That was change. And change is sometimes very hard to cope with. So what does God do in his wisdom? Well, sometimes he sends people to encourage us, but in this case, he sends a person to encourage them. I'd like you to look at verses 22 through 23. Just kind of scan them. What name do you see there? What do you see? Barnabas. You see Barnabas. And what is Barnabas doing? Well, mark this down. Write this down. Barnabas is encouraging. Barnabas is encouraging. You no, know, verse 21, the latter part of it tells us that a great number of people believed and were added to the Lord. Now, this caught the attention of the powers that be in Jerusalem. You know, Jews being saved, that was one thing. That's expected. But Greeks, Gentiles, people from different cultures and different races, probably temple prostitutes, oh, we got to go check this out. So what do they do? Well, they send the man with a nickname, Barnabas. Now, before we get into Barnabas, and we're going to look at him and see how he is a pattern uh, for encouragement, we need to define what encouragement is. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. If you've got your Bibles and you want to turn there, we'll go through this quickly. Hebrews 3, 13. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of believers that were in danger of turning their back on the faith. They were in danger of walking away from their faith. So the writer writes them to encourage them to keep on going. Listen to what he says. Verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The sin here is a sin of unbelief. Now, the primary word used for encouragement in the New Testament is a combination of two words, para alongside kaleo to call, para kaleo. And it has the idea of somebody being called to go alongside somebody and to assist them, to help them, to put their arms around them. Um, it's more than just platitudes. It's not just, oh, you look good this morning. Oh, how nice. No, no, it's action. There's a note of comfort here, caring for others. It has the idea of coming down to somebody and actually strengthening them in their weakness. Actually, as they've stumbled, you pick them up and you help them along on their journey, helping them. You notice in our text, it's deliberate and it's intentional. 
and it's for everybody. He says, encourage one another. Encouragement isn't just the job of Pastor Pratt. It's not just the job of an elder. Every one of us in this room who are believers who know Jesus Christ are to encourage one another. And you notice in the text, it's today. That means every morning when I wake up, every new day that I wake up, I'm to think encouragement. When I see my spouse, I'm to think encouragement. When I see my kids, I'm to think encouragement. When I enter this church and I see my church family, I'm to think encouragement. And you notice also, it's daily. It's not just once a week. It's every day. Well, you know, today is Sunday. Well, that's my day of encouragement. Well, tomorrow's Monday. That's my criticism day. Oh, oh yeah, here's, here, here's Tuesday. That's my darn right mean and nasty day. Now, I'm not even going to get into Wednesday. Like I told the first service, I'm not saying anything that hasn't hit me in the face first. Trust me. And I was wondering, do my words sow seeds of discouragement? Does it yank the rug right out from under people? Do I turn smiles into frowns? No. We're supposed to do this, encourage one another every day, and we're to do so deliberately. One more thing. The reason we encourage is so that people's hearts don't become hard and they fall into sin. The sin here is the sin of unbelief. In other words, we are to encourage one another on this road of life so that we continue in the faith. We are to strengthen one another. So, you know, these are some good principles. And principles are great. But do we have an example? Well, it just so happens we do. If you turn over to... Uh, Oh, chapter, back to chapter 11 where we started. Back to chapter 11 where we started. I want to say to you this morning that the apex of encouragement is the man named Joseph who is nicknamed Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. Now, how do you get a nickname? Well, you get a nickname because there is an outstanding... There's lots of ways, but it's usually... It's because there's an outstanding characteristic about you so that when people think of you, they think about that characteristic. So when they saw Joseph, they thought encouragement. Well, there goes Barney, always encouraging people. Man, he's, he's the son of encouragement. We first read about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 where he, he encourages people by his giving. That early church had a need. Their ministry was expanding. And when ministries expand, it costs money. And so they wanted to reach people inside the church and people outside the church. And so what does Barnabas do? He sells a plot of land and he brings it and he lays it at the apostles' feet so they can meet these needs, so they can do this ministry. He encouraged by giving. Now he next shows up in Acts chapter 9, where he encourages a new believer. Now, I'd like you to turn there, because we're going to tarry there a little bit. This chapter just has too much good stuff to pass on. We all know the story. Um, Pastor spoke on it last week. Saul of Tarsus had a hand in the murder of Stephen. He 
hated Christians. So he begins a reign of terror. He breathes out threats to people. And the idea there is he may have murdered other people. He yanks them out of their homes. And he's just tormenting them. It's a reign of terror. So he's on his way to Damascus. He's going to create more mayhem. And what happens? He sees the risen Christ. Christ appears to him. And he believes his sins are forgiven. He trusts in Christ. He's converted. And his whole life changes in an instant. And what's one of the first things that people do when they become Christians? Well, they want to go tell other people. They want to go join and visit other Christians. And so that's just what Paul does. So off he goes to Jerusalem. And he gets there. And in verse 26 of chapter 9, notice what happens. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the church, join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. And I can just, I can, I can just picture Paul. He's waltzing into the church lobby and he grabs himself a cup of coffee, maybe a couple of donut holes, and he saunters into the auditorium and every head turns. What is he doing here? And they slither away from him, staring, suspicious. You know, I don't blame him. I would do the same thing. I get that. But listen, my friends. There's a real danger here. It is a dreadful tragedy in the church of Jesus Christ today at how many people have the door closed in their face. The harm that is caused to young believers who, because they come from a background that we actually didn't believe that God could save somebody out of, and we look at them and we say, God couldn't possibly save someone like that. Well, he couldn't possibly save someone who looks like that. Well, that's what's happening to Paul. He's excited. He wants to let them know, I've changed. I'm a believer. And they're suspicious. Is that the way church is supposed to be? Is that the way grace is? Oh, but look who takes them. Then these four fantastic words that begin verse 27. Man, highlight this. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him. But Barnabas took him. Four glorious words. I mean, they're suitable for a monument. They're, they're, they're suitable for a tombstone. I mean, it would be enough, would it not? I wouldn't mind it being on my tombstone. But Jack took him. He encouraged people. What a great picture of encouragement. Barnabas took him. You notice he, he doesn't just take a piece of paper and he uh, draws a little map and says, well, if you uh, go down here, you can get there. Um, oh, he, he doesn't just say, hey, go down the hall and turn to the left and you'll find them. No, no, no. He took him. Taking people involves time. Taking people involves effort. Taking people involves the rearrangement of my plans. Yet, Paul took him. How encouraging this was for Paul. And in our text, the fact that he took him changes everything about Paul. Because we read in the following uh, verses 
that Paul was free to preach the gospel throughout Jerusalem, throughout the Roman Empire, and he turned the world upside down. All because Barnabas took him. Am I taking people? Am I making an effort? Barnabas shows up again in our main text. This will be the last time we turn to other verses. Chapter 11, he turns up again, and here he encourages not one person, but an entire church. Until now, the gospel had expanded strictly, basically, to the Jews. But now Greeks were joining the church. You know, and the people in Jerusalem said, you know, we got to check this out. Who are they going to send? They don't send some dour criticizer. Well, um, you know, th- th- this is nice, but would you uh, maybe change? Uh, well, you know, I would have done things differently. Uh, just go away. No, they, they, they don't do that. They send Barnabas. And what's Barnabas' reaction? Look in your text. What's his reaction? No, he goes there, and he sees change. He sees people from all different walks of life and cultures and races. People from all different moral backgrounds. And they're all united in Christ. And he doesn't criticize. What does he do? He says he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Barnabas knew grace when he saw it. And he rejoiced. He rejoiced in the change. Am I glad when things are new and different in my church. When young people are up front singing and praising God, do I rejoice when change comes our way? Name change? Building project? Oh, that we would be like Barnabas, that I would be like Barnabas, recognizing when the hand of God, when the grace of God is moving. And you look at our text, what does he do for these people? He encourages them. He encourages them to remain true to the Lord. He strengthens them. And and, and look how he's described Um, in, in verse 24. He's described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. This is the only time in the book of Acts or someone is called good. In fact, I would dare to say this is the only time in the New Testament that somebody other than Jesus is labeled as they're a good person. Now, why is that? Because he gladly took people. He took them. He gladly encouraged people. That's the kind of encouragement we need, isn't it? Paul made an impact. Why? Because, but Barnabas took him. This little church in Antioch is going to grow and make a great impact. Why? But Barnabas took him. And our community and our church will make an impact, but North Point Church took them. Oh, the encouraging hand of God. One more for us to look at very quickly. We saw that the hand of God was moving, and it produced change. New people are in the church. 
Then we saw that God sent Barnabas to help encourage this church, and he encouraged Paul. But there is even a greater impact. I want you to see that. And we're going to see that in verse 26. Look how this church grows over the course of the year, and there's a great impact. And the believers are reflecting Christ. All the believers are reflecting Christ. The disciples, now that word disciples there, it's referring to all the believers. Not, not just a small group. It's all the believers in this church. We're called Christians first in Antioch. They're reflecting Christ. Now Barnabas is there. He realizes that he can't just walk away from this church. Encouragers don't walk away. They need encouraging, but they also need teaching. And Barnabas isn't a teacher. He's called the son of encouragement. He's not called the son of teaching. So if you need a teacher, who are you going to call? You're going to call the apostle Paul. And that's just what he does here. He heads off to Tarsus. And I think this is very early in, in, in Paul's uh, ministry because he's called Saul here. It, it, it's, it's very early. And how encouraging, you know, Barnabas is still encouraging. He seeks Paul out. He goes, Paul, I can't do this teaching thing. I'm no good at it. Will you come? Will you help me? Will you minister to this church? How encouraging for Paul, but how encouraging to these people that for one year, Barnabas and Paul stayed there and encouraged them. And they grew, and people took notice. And this church, like Barnabas, gets a nickname. What do they call them? You call them Christians. Now, who called them that? They didn't call themselves that. The outsiders did. The Greeks did. The pagans did. Why? Because they reflected Christ. They're just like Christ. These are, this is a church that's always talking about Jesus, that Jesus fellow who died, who died for our sins, who rose again the third day. If we believe in him, we receive forgiveness and sins and eternal life. He will transform us. But also... They reflected the character of Jesus. How? By their encouragement. They encouraged others. Now, we see this down in verse 20, 27. During this time, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up through the, and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This is uh, chapter 11, verse 27. This happened during the reign of Claudius. This, the disciples, as each one was able to give, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This church reflected Christ through their giving. Each one gave as God had prospered, and they showed Christ. The early church was shaped through the ministry of of encouragement. One man, Barnabas, made a big difference. Can you imagine what 10 people would do? What 20 people would do? What 200 people would do? What we could do in our community by living the ministry of encouragement? coming alongside people. Now, it's time for me to really scare you. 
we're going to close with a quote from a Beatles song. Yeah, Eleanor Rigby. Oh, look at all the lonely people. Where did they all come from? Look at all the lonely people. Where do they belong? I'm going to tell you where they belong. They belong here with us. Yeah, they belong at the bosom of Jesus. They belong in the arms of grace. And my friends, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. They need a friend. They need a Barnabas. They need someone to come alongside them and take a hold of them in a world that has gotten so very cold and bring them in. I was telling the first service that I've been involved in ministry for a long, long time. And I see the hand of God moving here. And my question to you is this. Will we reach up and clasp the encouraging hand of God and encourage one another, encourage our community by our living, by our serving, in our loving, and yes, also in our giving? Will we dare to be a Barnabas? Will we dare to be sons of encouragement?